Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. The Democratic and Republican parties have experienced substantial shifts in recent years, from each party's demographic makeup to its policy priorities. To explore that realignment and to consider the future of America's political coalitions, I'm joined by my AEI colleague, Rui Tashira. Rui is a non-resident senior fellow here at AEI, where he focuses on the transformation of party coalitions and the future of American electoral politics. Rui, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here, Jim. Let me start with this. Describe to me who were the Republican and Democratic voters in the year 2000, Mm -hmm. and who are they today? Well, I mean, one way of looking at this certainly is is in terms of demographics. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you look at the typical Democratic voter today, they're much more likely to be white college educated than they were, and particularly white college educated liberals. Um, The Democrats certainly, despite the movement of some uh, non-white working class voters toward the Republicans are more of a non-white party than they have been because of the growth of Hispanics and Asians. Um, basically, uh, blacks are pretty stable as a, as a share of population, as a share of Democratic voters. Um, and they have just hemorrhaged white working class voters. I mean, especially in certain areas of the country, but overall as well. So the relative weight of white college educated voters and white non-college educated or working class voters has dramatically changed to the point where there are now more white college people in the Democratic coalition than white working class. And of course, you go back before 2000, uh, you know, it was even more true. Democrats were skewed to some extent in terms of just the weight of different voters toward white working class voters because it's such a big demographic. And the Democrats did, uh, you know, much more respectably among them than they do today. I mean, it's a long time trend, white non-college moving away from the Democrats, but it accelerates over time and then really kicks in big big time in 2016 when we saw the big moves around Donald Trump's uh, candidacy. So the Republicans, they're the reverse of that. You know, mm-hmm. they, they've got more working class voters now in general, particularly white working class voters, but even now we've seen recently, they have more non-white working class voters as well. They've hemorrhaged uh, to some extent white college educated voters, moderate to liberal, particularly in the suburbs. So they're less of a, a party in that sense. And then you could kind of map that onto the various state changes that have taken place where Democrats are strong and Republicans are strong. But that's sort of the broad demographic story. Was, was that, is, and if I, if I had gone to you in 2000 mm-hmm. and, and, and showed you how the, what the parties look like today, would you say like, yeah, that makes sense or, like, or what the heck happened over the, over, the, over the subsequent 20 years? That Are we seeing the result of big trends long time coming or is it more sort of shocks? Like was it the, you know, the China trade shock and Trump? How much is, again, a long-term yeah. trend Yes and yes. The China, events? China trade shock was huge in terms of hollowing out democratic support in a lot of heartland areas, again, particularly among white working class voters and in their communities. Um, and it's sort of, for a lot of these voters, it was very important in terms of convincing them more forcefully that Democrats did not really have their back in terms of you know, the effect of economic change on their communities, that they weren't oriented toward them. They, in fact, were more co- concerned about the coasts and the more dynamic and educated metropolitan areas. So that's big. Um, that changes the complexion of things. And then in 2016, you have the big Trump shock, 
which really enhances the uh, working class and working class character of the Republicans. So we did not anticipate a lot of that. Remember, we wrote the Emerging Democratic Majority in 2002. So at that point, we were looking at a broad series of shifts in the country, demographic, economic, ideological, and thinking that that would tilt uh, the playing field in general, and especially in particular states, toward the Democrats. But we did not anticipate that the Democrats would evolve as a party in such a way that they would actually alienate much more of the white working class base uh, than we thought plausible. I mean, we actually were very specific in our book. Democrats need to maintain a certain strong minority share uh, overall, and particularly in certain states, of the white working class voters, sort of the political arithmetic didn't work out. So we would have been surprised to look at things today and see how much that's changed, to see, you know, the Democrats are doing so well among white college-educated voters, um, particularly in certain states in the country, particularly in certain metro areas. We did not anticipate that there would be that sharp a shift. We saw that, by and large, professionals were shifting toward the Democrats, that that was an important um, trend and that simply because they were growing as a share of you know, the occupational structure, they should be a bigger share of voters as well. Um, but uh, the, the t- changes we've seen and the current, actually currently existing Democratic and Republican Party coalitions is not something we would have anticipated. We would have been surprised. So persuading white working class voters that Democrats really didn't have their back, I mean, that, that's sort of been a long time project by mm-hmm. I, Maybe it was 88, it was in San Francisco, and Republicans kept calling them San Francisco Democrats, as if to pound mm-hmm. home that this is a party of the elites, of the coasts, of you know, limousine liberals or something like that. But, mm-hmm. uh, that mess- but it really sort of took these sort of exogenous shocks, uh, you know, notably the China thing, to really, you know, as you said, to sort of drive that message home in a way that just— political slogans and stuff could not do. Yeah, the Democrats have been vulnerable in this area for a long time, and they have, you know, been losing white working class voters in different elections uh, for a lengthy period of time. But the consolidation of these voters in the Republican camp is also something that's been ongoing and and has sort of been driven at times by these shocks, which really solidified the alienation of these voters from, from the Democratic Party. Um, look, you look at the 1990s. I mean, Clinton, you know, basically carried the white working class vote. Of course, the big Perot vote as well. But it's it necessarily significant that at that point they weren't, you know, Republicans much better than Democrats. I must vote for Republicans if the Democrats are so bad. It was more of a, an open and fluid situation where the Democrats were, to some extent, really trying to get back to these voters, trying to move toward the center in certain issues, trying to not be the party of the elites in San Francisco and the coasts and so on. But, you know, over time, that deteriorated once again. You know, I thought Obama did a pretty decent job of trying to revive that to some extent, but he was not able to really sort of stabilize that approach toward the working class as a whole. Uh, You know, remember, he famously said, there's no red and blue America, there's not a black America, white America, Latino America, there's the United States of America. People love that stuff. (laughs) Um, And he really tried, assiduously tried to avoid dividing people uh, along lines of, of race and that so kind of on, it's become much more that popular. Talk you canceled these days in some, in right, some it circles. would. I mean, yeah, if you could you could read excerpts from Obama speeches today to your typical, you know, white college educated liberal in Washington or New York, and they'd say, "God, who is that? That's so racist." <laughs> this, 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 so, so we're seeing a a real a, a realignment. Is that an ongoing process, or is it sort of sort of hit 
like its reasonable extent? Well, I think that the realignment of, you know, the consolidation of a very heavy white working class advantage in the Republican Party, particularly in certain areas of the country, is is pretty much, a, it has happened. I mean, it's not say it's not necessarily going to last forever, but it's happened. Right. I think what's more interesting is whether this attrition of non-white working class voters, particularly Hispanics, but now we're seeing an increase among black voters, is, is actually going to be ongoing and, and make those demographics much more competitive than they are. I think it's very plausible with Hispanics. I think the indicators are just very strong. And I think, uh, you know, blacks are a more complicated political equation. The loyalty to the Democrats is so strong. But, uh, you know, let's remember, most, most black voters are moderate to conservative in ideological orientation. They're much more mixed in their views than white college-educated voters who are Democrats are, which is kind of, there's an interesting research that was just published by Patrick Ruffini on his, on his Substack that, that really brings that out, just how liberal white college-educated, how uniformly they are liberal on a whole vector of issues and how non-white voters, particularly working-class voters, are much more mixed in their, in their orientation. Is the split about, is it about income? Is it about education? Obviously, to an extent, those two things mm-hmm. o- o- overlap, but is there... What, what, is, what are the, really the, the fissures and the dividing lines? Well, I see it as sort of an interaction between cultural change and economic change. I mean, I think it's no question that as the Democrats have evolved in the direction they have on sociocultural issues, moving very significantly to the left uh, and aligning their, their views on issues of race, gender, crime, immigration, uh, and climate, I would include also to a large extent, um, that puts them out of the wheelhouse of working class voters generally both white and not white. So that's a factor. And then when you interact that with the kind of economic change that a lot of working class voters have seen, um, particularly in certain communities in the heartland, but I think by and large, working class people have done significantly worse than college educated people over time. Um, It's not clear to them this is their America and that the Democratic Party are the party of, you know, their people. It's maybe more, maybe more the party of people who live in New York or Washington or San Francisco or Seattle or whatever. Um, and, you know, they're doing great. I mean, right. those areas are relatively prospering economically, even though some of the people who live there are not. But the general impression, I think, is that the Democrats' cultural priorities and economic priorities are interacting with each other in such a way that it actually doesn't produce good outcomes for working class people. And I think you can even see it in terms of the relatively robust spending program that Democrats have had uh, in this Congress, in the recent Congress, and that Democrats talk about quite a bit. I think Noah Smith is correct when he describes this as checkism. <laughs> basically, we write, we write a lot of checks. Uh, you know, that should basically solve the problems that people have, regardless of whether that actually produces the stuff that, uh, in other words, if, if we can't, you know, build chip fabs, if we can't build infrastructure, if we can't build you know, this sort of infrastructure you need for rolling out renewable energy, all this stuff. If, if it's too hard to build stuff, um, that's not the explanation. The explanation is we need a bigger check. But that doesn't, that's not logical, right? <laughs> if, if things aren't getting done and improving the infrastructure of the country and providing jobs for people and making people's lives better, the solution to that is not necessarily to spend more money. It could be, but, you know, the question must be asked are the regulations, permitting, and other obstacles that are in the way of building stuff? Isn't this actually a serious problem for what progressives are trying to do, the left, the Democratic Party is trying to do, and the people they're supposedly trying to serve? So I think this is, 
Again, I think all of this fits together, the cultural and economic priorities of the Democrats to interact in a way that makes them less attractive to working class people. I imagine a lot of politicians would say, okay, um, I, I, wanna get, I want this person to vote for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a five-point plan of things we're, gonna do, we're, we're going to do, an economic program. But it's like, is that the solution? Because I'll hear Democrats say, well, like, we're doing this and we're doing that. And we have this new, you know, we have an infrastructure, we have all these plans. Is that, does that, is that sort of enough to get those voters back saying, well, we're going to have a big infrastructure plan, which is going to bring jobs to your community? Or is it really like, that's great, but I, I just don't think you care about me. I think for these cultural reasons that you envision the world very differently than I do, and checks and programs aren't enough if I think you, you really just don't relate to me or respect me. Yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, I do think the embedded in the democratic approach along these lines is the assumption that culture doesn't matter. (laughs) All we have to do is basically uh, be very specific about the plans, the great plans we have for you and your community and the things we're going to implement and the money we're going to spend. And that will overcome people's doubts about you culturally and whether they think you're on your side and whether they think you look down on them or not. And I think that's completely incorrect. If you want to get in the door with these kind of voters, you have to really act like and believe and give the impression you do care about them. You don't look down on them. You get it, you know. Uh, and in fact, my values are like your values, really. I mean, all of this stuff that these people are saying in San Francisco and so on, those aren't my values. Those are, you know, they're, they're entitled to say what they want. But as a Democrat, I'm on your side. I mean, I would like to think that voters, they will that they listen to the policy they plans don't. on one side and then they match them up. And I agree with, you know, 65% of right, the plans right. on this side, only 40. So I'm going to vote for the right, 60%. Like Anthony, I mean, Anthony Downs economic theory of democracy. <laughs> uh, it's basically that's, everyone, that's, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's sort of the uh, rational. That's right. like the hyper rational. Yeah. That voter. don't happen. Um, and I think, but you know, the second part of that is okay. You're, you're not through the door with them culturally and not really listening to you very closely. And they're not giving you as much benefit of the doubt as you'd like. But potentially, at least over time, if in fact you are able to deliver, not just promise to deliver benefits, not just promise to revive their communities, actually do it, then I think that puts you in a better position to, to reach those kinds of voters. I think part of the problem the Democrats have is, you know, well, just look at it in terms of recent history, right? The last two years of the Obama administration, Obama administration, the Biden administration, um, you know, working class people haven't done very well. You know, inflation has eaten up real wage gains. A lot of the money that's out there to be put into projects isn't being spent yet. It really can't be spent yet. The projects are stalled. Um, so, you know, basically, what have you done for me lately? Not only do you look down on me <laughs> and think I'm a, a rube because I don't like, I'm not down with a cultural program, the Democratic Party, and I don't think maybe, you know, gender fluidity should be taught in those to second graders, but you haven't know, really done anything for me. You know, at least the Republicans, you know, they're, they claim they'll be different. I'll, I'll give them a try. Uh, you know, I think that's really, but you know, the other side of this is that's why we're in a stasis period of American politics because Republicans can take advantage of some of these cultural contradictions in the Democratic Party approach and reach a lot of voters, including working class voters. But what are they doing for them? You know, where is the dynamic economy that Republicans are going to unleash? You know, people haven't really seen it yet either. So I think people toggle back and forth between the parties voting in a sense more against the other party than for the party they vote for because, you know, something they really dislike becomes salient in the campaign. And they say, ah, screw that. I won't vote for the Democrats or screw that. I won't vote for the Republicans. That's what happened in 2018, you know, for the Republicans. So 
are parties more or less coalitional? Are they more or less ideological? Or is there like a third category? Well, they're more sorted. We know that, yeah. you know, people who are strong Democrats have much more ideologically constrained positions than they used to. And the same thing is true on the Republican side. But there's still a vast group of people in the middle who form big parts of any party's coalition in any given election who have much more mixed ideological views. Part of the problem, I think, is that both parties sort of policy positions and sort of affect and image is dominated by the more hardcore segments of each party, which do not at all amount to the, uh, you know, the majority of the party and the party's voters at any given time. So I think that's, that's part of the problem. I mean, it's not just, it's not that everyone who votes Democratic is a down-the-line liberal. Everyone who votes Republican is a down-the-line conservative. Not true at all. Uh, but there is less attentiveness on either party's side to, okay, well, how do I reach those voters who have mixed ideological views? How can I, you know, assure them that I'm not crazy? Are there incentives on, uh, for them to try to do that? Well, if you want to win, yeah. The problem is, I think, and Yuval Levin and I are writing a, a piece about this in terms of the evolution of party coalitions, uh, in a, doing a big survey to accompany it, but also looking at the history of this. Um, I think we're now at a point where both parties think they're one election away from crushing the other side. So that gives a lot of incentives. You know, I think that's an incorrect view. But if you believe that, yeah, then I, why not just double down? What does that mean your, to crush it? Does that mean to crush them uh, for two years? I mean, there are no permanent. Well, I think they think that it's more permanent yeah. than just two years. And I think they think they're going to win bigger victories than they do. I mean, if you win, you know, 55-45 as opposed to 51-48, right? That's a big difference. And presumably that would have down ballot effects and one party would be really dominant for a while. But... We're not seeing that. We're seeing instead a kind of seesaw motion between the two parties. And, you know, look, Democrats can't understand why anyone would vote for Trump and the Republicans at this point, right? I mean, they're all like quasi-fascists. So if you believe that and you're convinced they're as bad as you think they are, it's just a matter of bringing this more forcefully to the attention of the, the honest workers and peasants of America. And then they will realize what they need to do, and, and they will repudiate the other side. So we're going to amp up our rhetoric on this. We're not going to dial it down and try to reach voters more in the middle who would consider voting for Trump, would consider voting for DeSantis, would consider voting for Republican in any given race because they're, they're actually pretty uneasy about the Democrats in many respects. It puts a premium on sort of a base mobilization theory of politics, which I think is fundamentally incorrect in, in American politics today. It's, it's, it really is still mostly about persuasion, but both parties are not as committed to that as they should be, I think. You know, there was this, you know, weird phenomenon uh, back in 2016 of sort of the, the people who liked Bernie Sanders and the people who also liked Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. you know, like, what would they possibly have in common, you know? And yet you had people who liked both. And you had right, sort of these, sure. these populist wings uh, in both parties. Do you see within those pos within those populist wings sort of the seeds for another sort of realignment where we end up with a a more thoroughly populist party where someone who likes Bernie Sanders and Trump would feel very comfortable and then you end up with kind of a drawbridge up party, kind of a populist protectionist party, mm -hmm. and then you have kind of a drawbridge down, a more open people like globalization. Yeah, party. yeah, I read that like, like yeah. so. Is that is that is that a possible realignment? Well, there's sure it's possible. Is it likely? Probably <laughs> well, not. The, you know, the realm of the realm of. <laughs> no, I, I think the American uh, two-party system is is really hard to change, really fast in that kind of way. I think that 
we're going to continue to see, you know, these sort of mix of approaches in both parties. It wouldn't, wouldn't be, re- I don't see it being resolved by having this populist party and this sort of open, open party. I mean, also, which one would it be? I mean, people make cases on both sides, right? right? Um, what well, you know. well, that one side would lose their populist wing to the other side and right. they would go over. I think that would be doubtful. But, you know, never say never. Um, I mean, parties you know, Mike change. Lind, my friend Mike Lind is always talking about how he thinks there's going to be a realignment toward the Republicans. You know, and they would be the real populist party, reject the elites. And the Democrats are so, you know, far out over their skis and a lot of this cultural stuff and so dominated by their, their metro liberal wing that they would just, you know, they're basically, no matter what they do and how many checks they write, they're still fundamentally a neoliberal party and they're devoted to that kind of economics. And you could really... You could see in people like Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio and Tom Cotton and people like that and J.D. Vance, there's a, a, an emerging wing of the Republicans that wants to go more toward robust industrial policy, America first, and so on. And that could provide a pull of attraction that really would realign the parties. Now, could it happen? Yes, it could happen, but I'm not seeing enough evidence for it. But parties, yeah, do, so undergo, I see, parties do undergo big changes. I mean... Uh, you know, Bill Clinton, the era of big government is over. I mean, that wasn't mm-hmm. that long. I mean, I mean, maybe now it seems like long ago. You know, it's over tw- it's over twenty years, but over a decade or two, they can shift a lot. Obviously, Absolutely. the Republican Party has shifted yeah. a lot. You're talking well, about talking industrial about a, policy, a long and, enough time frame, ten or twenty years. Sure. I mean, my my shtick about what the Democrats should do is pretty simple. They should move to the center on cultural issues. They should embrace and promote an abundance agenda and embrace patriotism and liberal nationalism. So, well, there's at least like three Democratic pundits who think that. So that's, I guess that's a start. You got to you right, build right. from there. Well, I, th- I think there are green shoots out <laughs> there. I think people are getting pretty sick of uh, the way the party has evolved. And, and there's, there's a pretty good understanding among a lot of people that the party's coalition is not fit for purpose. It's too weak among rural and exurban areas, small town America. It's too weak among working class voters. There are hemorrhaging non-white working class voters. We're too dominated by... Liberal educated elites, um, this is not an efficient way to develop a you know, strong majority coalition in the United States. We might win the popular vote, for example, in election X nationally, but that does not translate into what we need. The Democrats need to, in a sense, go back to the future and have a broader appeal in broader sections of the country. So well, I think gi- that makes sense. Since you're giving out advice to uh, party leaders, then what about the Republicans? Well, uh, get rid of Trump. <laughs> Uh, you know, that's hard to do. But I, I think that certainly I think it's the case that the Republican Party has been changed by the Trump phenomenon. It's more of a working class party. It is to a large extent more of a populist party. It's not going to go after entitlement reform, no matter what Nikki Haley says. Um, and I think they have to accept that and figure out a way to sand off the rough edges of Trumpism, ideally, which would start by getting rid of Trump and figuring out how to harness his populist appeal into you know, a political and economic offer that would reach even more working class voters than they have. And also by dialing down some of the really hard edge cultural stuff, you could probably bring back some of the college educated voters as well that Republicans have lost. I mean, there's none of this. I mean, Democrats may dominate white college educated voters, for example, in certain areas of the country, but all of those voters are not necessarily all that liberal. There is a hardcore that is, and they would not vote for a Republican if put a gun to your head, to their head. But there are a lot of other voters who are disquieted by some of the developments they've seen on the Democrats' watch and could potentially be reached by the Republicans if they didn't seem equally or more crazy. 
<laughs> so advice is be less crazy. Yeah, be no. Well, my my view is in a broad sense. I mean, America is desperately looking for the normie voter party, and right now neither party qualifies. And I think there's well, certainly there's a party pot likes, at the end of that to rainbow. Tell people that they're the normie party, and the other side is the madman party. Right. It's just hard to make that case now because you may say you're the normie voter party, but uh, look at what you're doing. I'm not so sure about that. Um, but I think that would be the sweet spot. Rory, thanks for coming on the podcast. Appreciate it. Hey, it was fun. Thanks for having me.